Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Fast am I and welcome to Spotlight. I'm Sarah Hendy and on today's programme we have a rather special interview between our very own in-house light music expert Maurice Powell and renowned composer, conductor and arranger Gavin Sutherland. Now, Morris and Gavin have worked together before, but this was Morris's first opportunity to have an in-depth conversation with this great man, who is currently music director of the English National Ballet. And as I'm sure you can imagine, Morris and I jumped at the chance to make this happen. This afternoon, I'm very pleased to have as my guest the conductor, Gavin Sutherland. Um, Gavin, you're not just a conductor, of course, but you are a well-known composer and an arranger of music. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about your career? Where, where, where are you at the moment in your career? At the moment in my career, I'd like to say, um, like most conductors, I'm still at the start. Um, I think we're always learning and we're always uh, ad- adapting and improving no, every indeed, day. Indeed, indeed. Uh, <laughs> but um, in terms of uh, where I am currently, so my day job is as music director for English National Ballet, although I have a healthy work schedule outside of there with many of the uh, BBC orchestras, for instance, and uh, and also quite a lot of work with um, CBSO and Liverpool Phil, and also quite a few little elements of uh, other orchestras creeping in around the world um, as the year progresses. So it promises to be... Uh, quite an eventful year uh, in many respects, but also never losing the fact that uh, a lot of my two great loves, ballet and light music, are rather <laughs> rather more evident than most. Yes, of course. And, and uh, you are much travelled. I noticed that you were, you were conducting in New Zealand at one point, am I right? Or was it Australia? That's right, that's right. I used to be um, a principal guest conductor of the Royal New Zealand Ballet, but uh, it was lovely earlier last year, in February last year, um, we went to the ENB went to New Zealand to perform there, so it was nice to you know see a few old friends and uh, enjoy a little of the wine and the sunshine. Whilst unfortunately in this country, everybody was thick to the gills in snow, which oh, uh, gosh. did feel a, a little bit a little bit crushing. But uh, yeah. You know, occasionally you're allowed a little bit of luxury and uh, that was it. <laughs> Absolutely, first-class flights out and back and all the rest of it. Excellent, good to know. And um, my, <laughs> funnily enough, my uh, in the early 70s, I, I, I did a couple of years uh, as a galley slave in the Royal Ballet Orchestra. And um, oh, yeah. I well remember being up in, in Manchester when John Lansbury was conducting, I think the last time, or it was the last tour, that Nureyev and Fontaine did together. And they, mm-hmm. and they danced um, uh, Sleeping Beauty. Um, but I remember those uh, those two years very well. Um, uh, what I remember more than the playing, apart from sort of something like 30 consecutive Giselles followed by 30 consecutive oh, yes. Swan Lakes. You have um, my experience. Extreme sympathies, Morris. <laughs> Sometimes it got a bit hard going, um, but it, it was the it was a very uncomfortable business, really moving around all over uh, all over the UK and staying in some pretty horrendous digs. But the but I, I remember being backstage with the dancers and, uh, and and thinking how exhausted they were most of the time, and all the girls, all the petite little corps de ballet, 
um, smoking themselves to death and eating like half a sandwich a day <laughs> to keep their weight down. And I thought, if only the if only the people out front could see this, um, they see the swans on stage. I have no idea the dedication and the uh, and the pain I think that goes into producing a dancer. Indeed, and it's generational as well. I mean, nowadays. Um, there's no smoking, uh, or very, very rarely you see any of uh, any dancers smoke. No. Nowadays, you know, they you see them throwing junk food down themselves because, of course, they burn it off. I've always said the same thing, though. The place you can judge the the dedication and the suffering that goes into making a dancer, a female dancer in particular, is look at their feet. Yes. Um, I mean, I've always said the same thing. Musicians, you know, we have to look the part. Um, because, of course, we're seen to be performing. Um, there are, there's not much of the, what we're using to perform that isn't seen. That sounds really strange, but you know what I mean? Whereas a dancer, their feet are buried in the point shoes. When you take them off, they look like they've been dipped in blackcurrant jam. And, yes. so, uh, you know. and the constant fear of injury. However, moving on, um, so so the ballet obviously takes up an enormous amount of time, um, and I agree with you. Some of the some of the greatest music ever written is ballet music, um, and a lot of it could be deemed quite light these days in the current climate. Indeed, it can. Um, but getting on to light music itself, what kindled your interest in light music, and perhaps particularly British light music, Gavin? It's a very simple story. I was seven years old, and having been uh, having played the piano since the age of three essentially by ear uh, and then learning to read music a little later on a regular uh, little mozart then <laughs> not quite as prolific as he was and i'm still alive which is a good thing absolutely pays to live indeed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so um at seven i was playing uh, trombone in an orchestra course in durham over the summer and a conducting uh, conductor that I know very well is still with us, and uh, a local conductor from uh, the northeast called Alan Price, not the Alan Price. No, he would say, <laughs> no, "I am the Alan Price." They all are the Alan Price. Uh, but he brought with him um, the London Suite by Eric Coates. And the thing that fascinated me up front was not the music; it was the colour of the paper it was printed on, because you know those old <laughs> chapel uh, orchestral sets were printed on this rather. Um, yellow paper and it fascinated me and then we started to play Knightsbridge and this is an orchestra of 7 to 12 year olds having a real good stab at a piece of music and I thought my head was going to explode but where have they been keeping this it absolutely just took me and when we got to the trombones playing the big theme at the end it was like my heart was going to burst it was the most fantastic moment a piece of music in c major that had a good big tune and a lot of exciting orchestration around it as well i just fell head over heels in love with this music and did what every child or every enthusiast would do went to a record shop and said can i have a record of eric Coates? who and um, then it became well we have one old record here but uh, it's uh, you know it's a bit dusty, but we'll give you it for a sale price. And it was for a long time one of the few records of light music, never mind just Eric Coates, that was available. And I always thought, I hope this changes. Even then, I thought, I hope this changes um, that we get introduced to more of this music because as time went on, and I played in concert bands and other orchestras, and indeed conducted. I went to try and find as much of this music um, and old bandmasters from uh, the horses mm, of yes. the services 
also knew this music. It was in their DNA. They knew it so well. So getting that transferred to me as well just developed a real love in me for a lot of these composers. And uh, as you mentioned, Hayden Wood being uh, amongst the top five um, of yours, certainly it's number two for me to Eric Cohn's. And, that's um, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, f- I, I think for many people, um, Coates's position um, really is unassailable. Um, obviously, after the war, um, Robert Farnan and plenty of other composers who, who were very, very influential. But certainly, oh, well, I'm glad to hear you say Coates is number one, Hayden Wood number two, Farnham possibly number three. I know these, these number three without a doubt. These Farnham charts are odious, but I think I think people that know this music perhaps as well as we do um, may may very well agree. And of course, um, our old friend Ernest Tomlinson. Well, Ernest is kind of joined third with Farnham because yeah. um, I, I've, I, whilst I you know can't uh, impress enough how important that man's influence has been both on light music for the world and also for light music in my life. Um, as well as being an incredibly talented conductor, he was one of the great light music composers. And, you know, the more I discover, even now, knowing quite a lot of his repertoire, having recorded it, performed it, and even just studied it, because that's how I suppose I learned to arrange and learned to compose, mm, yeah. studying scores. You know, you can't learn how to write this music from a book, although obviously um, in those days these composers had their formal training, but they used it in certain ways. And um, there's no doubt that people like Farnan with his training and uh, Ernest with his at the Royal Manchester College, as it was, and so on, and Coates at the Academy, um, these people had a real serious set of classical chops, which they used... Um, to entertain the world with light music. And I've always vowed that if I had the opportunity to do that, I'd be a very happy man. We mentioned um, Ernest Tomlinson, which leads us to the Light Music Society. This is very, very much um, the Tomlinson family affair, uh, as far as I remember, with the uh, with with the huge barn at Longridge near Preston, crammed with thousands and thousands of of packs of band music. Can you tell us something about 60, the Light 65, Music? Sixty-five thousand, I think. It's Sixty-five thousand. So we're yeah. never going to run out of repertoire, are we? <laughs> I really hope not. I mean, <laughs> go back to the start. How did you know, how did it, um, how did all this music end up in a barn in the in, admittedly in the middle of some of the most stunning countryside in the north of England? Oh, yes. H- how did all that happen, uh, Gavin? So um, Ernest was um, a passionate believer in light music, and he could see the writing on the wall for it at the BBC in particular. Um, you know, there was uh, a, def- a definite trend shift um, because light music, of course, in its day was popular music. And indeed, most of the early materials that are in the library are stamped property of the BBC light music or yes, popular I've, music library. I've noticed that, yes. And they just jumped them. They just said, oh, well, well there's too much here for us to use. 
So let's just dispense with it. Ernest knew one thing um, to his utter delight was um, the lorries that were thumping up and down the country. Um, they were heading to London. Um, they were making their deliveries to London and coming back empty. <coughs> so Ernest decided to capitalize on this and sling them a few quid and say, if you're going, could you please drop by the BBC Music Library on the way home? There'll be a load of creative music to bring. Could you bring it up and drop it up for me here? And that formed the basis of the library. So, it, um, it's, so it's, it's possibly true then. I mean, I heard a story, I think, from, uh, from Ernest's daughter that um, he'd uh, been at the BBC and he noticed them somewhere out the back tipping a load of music into a skip and rushed yes. down to, to physically <laughs> stop them doing it. And, to, and, and that's how it kind of started. Is that just apocryphal? Right. Is that true? That's true. No, not, not at all. But that's just as true as, as the other part of it as well. I mean, obviously, that's amazing. Uh, we both know, <coughs> you and I both know that a set of par orchestral parts in a score is quite a weighty matter. Hmm. Um, so if you, say, take 100 of those... That wouldn't fit in a conventional motor car. So there was the simple matter of how to get it somewhere. Because obviously, if it was still on BBC premises, the BBC had every right to junk it. So Ernest's um, passion for going to say, please don't throw it away. I'll have it. Mm. Um, yeah. Right, OK, well, go and take it away then. And then how do you do that? So, I mean, everything just fell into place in a, in a certain way, you know, the lorries and... Uh... These uh, packs of music, these band packs, this became the basis then of the Light Music Library, which now, as you say, has over 60,000 copies. And they, because they loan music to orchestras all over the country, for all over, for all over the world, for all I'm aware... Um, That's right. So the existence of this library has been a major thing in basically saving British Light Music from disappearing. Indeed. And of course, the society's aim is also about the performance of this work, because the other issue one has with uh, a great deal of orchestral sets of parts, we've had many people visit the library over the years and say, there's two dozen PhD theses in this, in this room, you know, the, of, yes. of various composers or styles or whatever. But on top of all that, you've got to think, well, that's all very well, but this music was written to be played. Mm. It was written to be broadcast. It was written to be recorded. But whatever, it was written to be performed. And it's the society's aim uh, via the library to ensure that the music continues to have a life as a living material to be performed. And you know, that is always the big challenge because that's when you start. Um, obviously, you've got orchestras who know of pieces and professional orchestras and amateur and semi-pro alike. And they all say, oh, well, we know this piece. We'd like this piece. And then it's up to the library's job. People like uh, Hillary, Ernest's daughter, hmm. and the amazing staff at the library to say, yes, they are dedicated as well. Yes. And they say, have you considered this piece or have you considered this is a similar sort of style of piece or this is a complimentary piece? And sometimes they'll take that up and say, well, yeah, OK, we'll have a go at that. And sometimes like, no, this is all we want. Hmm. So, you know, little steps, but... You know, enough little steps can make a difference. And certainly in the last 10 to 15 years, thanks to the library's good works, uh, we have seen light music appear on so many programs and so many uh, recordings and so many concerts, uh, uh, orchestral concerts and otherwise. Um, you know, I think little by little, 
it's doing some good. No, I think I would agree. I, I mean, I, I uh, like you. I, I, I um, received the Light Music Society magazine, and a good mm-hmm. two or three pages are crammed full of advertisements for Light Music concerts all over the UK, and that's really Absolutely. gratifying to see. Now, this brings me on to. Um, your new CD devoted to the music of, of Hayden Wood. Um, can you tell me yes. something about that? Well, I've always been a, a fan of Hayden's music and uh, I was introduced quite some time ago to Marjorie Cullen, who is, I believe, Hayden Wood's grandniece. Now, my introduction to Hayden Wood was, again, back in the days as a trombonist at a local school's concert band mm-hmm. on a Saturday morning playing a delightful piece called Man in Veen, a piece I think you might know rather I well. I think we do know uh, that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this is tremendous. And, you know, when you're at that age, and it's formative musicianship and formative musical appreciation, um, I thought, I've got to find out more about this man. Because up until then, it took me... Um, a long time to realise that he'd written Roses of Picardy. It came that way round. I yes. think he'd written The Horse Guards Whitehall for Down Your Way. That's and right. And he'd written Man in Vain. Then I was brought The Seafarer. And all of a sudden I thought, this music's unbelievable. At the time, I rather foolishly said in my teenage way, it's like Eric Coates with an A-level. Um, <laughs> because some of, the chromatic harmony, it's some of the chromatic harmonies are a tiny little bit more advanced than Coates would use. But, you know, the music is no less appealing for that and no less light. Yeah, there are some Haydenwood pieces where he, he does a pretty fair imitation of Elgar and occasionally of Delius. And that's where you get Absolutely. the sort of slightly spicier chromatic harmony. But I'm just noticing here, I have a copy of the disc uh, in front of me, of course. And um, yes, some of these pieces, in fact, most of them have never been recorded before. And they're very surprising pieces because with some composers, you see a trend or you see a development. Um, You know, there are some composers that sit on their unique style and they'll use that for the rest of their life, but, Mm. uh, you know, in slightly different forms. Haydenwood never did that. I mean, you know, this music takes us all over the world. It takes us to Egypt. It takes us to London. It takes us through, you know, depicting cinema stars of the day. You know, it is quite a... He was um, always searching for something new to offer his audiences, and yet he could still jump straight back into, for example, the Royal Castle Suite. You know, he can jump back uh, to a a typical march, which is absolutely uh, tremendous. You know, the Balmoral March in there. Yes, oh yes. In the snapshots of London, those Mm. kind of pieces. So, you know, he had the, the knack of being able to associate with the traditional light music forms of that era, but he was always searching for something new. You know, the, the Egyptian thing, for instance, reminded me a little of Catelby, but again, with a slightly course, spicier yes. twist. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, you know, Catelby is a composer we could talk about. We have a, a whole day seminar on Catelby. I'm That's not sure fine. anybody knows exactly how much music he wrote. Um, and, of course, he wrote under so many different names. But I agree with you there. There is, there is something very exotic about the, uh, the Egyptian suite.
suppose this is the point where I ask the the uh, the deathless question. Yeah. Um, and I think you know which question this is coming. How would you, for our <laughs> listeners, how would you define light music? And as far as British light music's concerned, um, a very awkward one, this, what would you say was the first piece of what we would really call British light music that's still uh, in the repertoire? Difficult ones, I know. Wow. And I'll sing the Messiah for an encore. I mean, <laughs> OK, um, so my definition of light music actually dispenses with the term itself. For me, I call it orchestral concert music because essentially it is an entertaining piece of music um, that is sometimes defined as something that is simply pure entertainment. It is not intended to um, do anything other than capture a moment and delight your ear. So that in, sense, that, in a sense, means it has to have um, an appealing melody. It has to have an appealing setting of an appealing melody. And it also has to um, be pacey enough that it keeps the audience's attention and keeps the player's attention, of course, because mm. one feeds the other. Players love this music. Um, oh, absolutely. I found that my string players moan a lot because it's actually, they are kept very busy indeed, particularly during yes. Coates and, and Hayden Wood. And I once had a, um, a conversation with Ernest because there was something in one of the horn parts which I thought was extraordinarily awkward. And I said, I said, Ernest, why do you write such difficult music? Um, well, you know, technically difficult. And he said, well... Basically, I was writing for people like Dennis Brain and other famous That's players right. of the past. Why wouldn't I? And I thought, well, that tells me. That certainly puts me in my place. Um, but this the music is that, technically that... difficult, isn't it? It is technically difficult. Well, that's the point. There's always this um, stereotypical thought that, oh, it's light music, so you know we can play with silly, scoopy vibrato or mm. scoopy little slides and things. And actually, there is a considerable art to um, how to perform light music. And, you know, I don't mean it to sound pretentious, but the only, the best way to study this is to go back to those recordings of the 30s and 40s yes. of the New Light Symphony Orchestra, or indeed, uh, like the London Symphony, the Philharmonic, the lot, that were churning these recordings out for music libraries and also for broadcast Didn't out. they adopt such fast tempos? I've listened to some of the Coates pieces conducted by Coates himself, and... Yeah. Um, all right, they may have been they had time constraints, possibly, with the, with the recording techniques of the time. But but the, the the kind of the session players that used to rattle this stuff off, the BBC concert players, they must have yes. been phenomenal because the, the speeds that were demanded, um, you know, would make your eyes water today. And not only that, but they'll have played it through once. Session time is at yeah. a premium, so you've got three hours in those days when it was recorded straight to disc you had enough time in that to basically record, uh, to rehearse it, to play it through once, maybe just look at a couple of corners so the conductor had to be on it. If it was the composer, that's easier, or sometimes not. Mm. Um, and then they put the light on and they recorded it. And then it could be a split wax or it could be an oboe too close to a microphone, as Coates once described, that can make it distort, which made the, the, the cutting lathe jump. Um, there can be all sorts of technical sides to it. But essentially, they would also sh uh, flash a light. So if things were a little bit too <laughs> indulgent and yes. they were getting right to the end of the disc, 
then they would have to, you'd feel the tempo start to crank up. Yes, you would, you, yeah. If you listen to the earlier Coates recordings, there's a re-release done recently of some of his very early um, uh, early electric recordings, and you can hear the pace and the excitement or maybe the fear. I don't know quite how you'd, how you'd judge it. Mm. But these players, and I've always said, um, London session musicians are the best in the world. And I'll London agree. orchestral musicians are the best in the world. They are matchless. They can seize the style, they can seize the uh, intention, and they can also interpret the music perfectly on sight reading it. And to that, and I think I've I would never... add that British light music is the best light music in the world. Um, I'm not saying that there are some charming American pieces and European pieces, there's no doubt about that, but there's something about British light music that raises it into a very special place. I do have one further question for you, Gavin, before we're, before okay. you leave us. Um, have you ever been to the Isle of Man? I have never been to the Isle of Man, and because of Hayden Wood's connection with it and the music that I've performed um, to do with the place, it's making me hungry to come and visit, and I would really well, like to do that I'm, at the I'm, earliest uh, opportunity. Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be reckless here, and uh, on behalf of the Isle of Man Symphony Orchestra, um, invite you at some sometime within the next year or two, whenever uh, schedules permit, as if you would uh, come to the Isle of Man and conduct the orchestra in a special light music concert. Details to be arranged, but uh, how would you how would you feel like about doing that? That, for me, would be a considerable honour, Morris, and thank you very much for offering. Well, it'd be absolutely wonderful. My guest uh, this afternoon has been Gavin Sutherland, the composer, arranger and conductor, particularly associated with ballet, but also with British light music. Gavin, it's been an absolute pleasure, and we hope to see you here soon. I can't wait to be there. It's, yeah. uh, I have to tell you one little thing before I go, which is, as a kid, there was one thing that fascinated me, was... Um, Holiday brochures. I was a television nut, and they used to advertise holiday brochures on the TV, and I used to just order them as an eight-year-old, just because I found it interesting to see what other places looked like. And the one I had every year was the Isle of Man, and I thought, I've got to go there. You have been listening to Gavin Sutherland in conversation with Morris Powell, do tune in tomorrow evening at nine o'clock for a special instalment of Morris Powell's programme, A Little Light Music, dedicated solely to the life and work of Hayden Wood. You'll be able to listen again on demand to A Little Light Music for one week, and you can hear and even download this conversation in full on the Manx Radio website. Have a lovely creative week. Slend you.